Namaste, everyone. Welcome to the Charbuk Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. All right, time for another podcast. And we have with us Abhijit Ayer Mitra. Abhijit, welcome to the podcast. Veil, veil, battery veil. Thank you for having me here. All right, guys. So just to give you a background about what the topic of discussion is. So uh, I think it was uh, on the 8, 17th of February, Abhijit posted uh, a paper uh, on the Chanakya Forum, which was titled Taliban, a mentality, not an ethnicity, a ground report from Afghanistan. So I went through the paper and I was like, uh, this needs to be discussed in detail. So I told Abhijit to come and here he is. So Abhijit, before we get into the details of the paper, I want to start with a particular aspect of of the paper itself, so I, I, which I found very interesting, uh, so that you know people understand what was the purpose of this paper. So you start by explaining the background and methodology of the paper. I know usually nobody is going to ask you this question, uh, but Charvak podcast me pucha jata So can you explain to everyone why did you start your paper by explaining the background and methodology and why it needed to be explained? Um, sure. Because see, there's a big difference. If you notice, most of the report is anecdotes, right? The thing is, it's not actually an anecdotal report. It's actually a, a, a primary source data gathering report. It's just that anecdotes uh, ended up encapsulating a lot of the data that I found so well, you know, because sometimes... <coughs> You can't make head or tail of data because when I was preparing for this trip, I read a lot of Indian literature and I read a lot of Western literature, right? And the thing was, if you go to Afghanistan, you see that Western folks don't really mingle with Afghans. They can't go into the countryside and talk to people. And Indian researchers don't have the money to do that, right? Because they're completely underpaid and whatever have you. <clears throat> and mostly what Indian researchers tend to do is they end up going to conferences in five-star hotels and taking off somebody else's knowledge, or they read some Western paper and then give it an Indian spin. So there's never really been a proper Indian data gathering exercise. So I didn't even know, uh, like all my initial um, assumptions and suppositions went out of the window. I had to keep looking at things afresh because none of what I'd read was actually the case on the ground. Right. Things just like, you know, we're constantly told by Indians, uh, you know, the Uzbeks and the Tajiks hate the Pashtun and they hate the Taliban. And that was so not true. It was completely bogus. So then because you've decided that this is what happened, I then had to go back to first principles and then ask the Tajiks and Uzbeks that I met, do you support the Taliban? And most of them did. It depended on their uh, background, like the uh, urban people in Kabul who just wear a head scarf, they refuse to wear a burqa, do not. But almost every and uh, uh, every Uzbek or Tajik woman that you meet who is in a full uh, a burqa, uh, say they're good chaps, you know, they have nothing particularly nasty to say about them. They're kind of indifferent to it. So it's, it's quite... Uh, uh, it was a complete educational experience even for me. So my initial suppositions all went out of the window. I had to start afresh all over again with all my suppositions and asking questions. And then, of course, the problem was that, you know, you when you're doing research, 
you very clearly think, okay, so I'm going to ask some 2030 Uzbeks, 2030 Tajiks. Uh, how do you do that? When you can't see the people, when you can't, I mean, you can't go around asking, are you Tajik, are you Tajik, are you Tajik? Or are you Uzbek or whatever? You you get because most people there are very reticent talking to people. Unlike Kashmir where you go and you say I'm a human rights activist and they'll immediately come. Like you know, when I landed up in Srinagar one month after uh, uh, 370 got abrogated, uh, the guys, the entire Vistara plane was full of Hajj returns, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what had happened was that at the baggage thing, I started talking to them and they're like, uh, did something happen to you? Was it okay for you? Uh, did, uh, did you, uh, uh, where, where your families, I know you were in Saudi Arabia, but when uh, 370 got abrogated, did, uh, did your family suffer and all of that? No, 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 no. And then suddenly I tell them I'm a human rights activist and the same guys, Bhai sahab, aapko pata nahi, kitna zulum hua hai hamare pe, Hindustan state mein genocide kar diya. Same guy telling me two minutes back, nothing's happened. Suddenly genocide. So, but in Afghanistan, it's not like that. They're very guarded. <coughs> and then, of course, you, you're constantly prepared that in a conflict society. People are going to lie and they're going to lie through their noses. Afghanistan is not like that. Unlike Kashmir, they don't seek attention. They don't want their voices heard. They'd rather not be heard. And they're very reticent to give you answers. When they do give you answers, I can't judge, but it sounds fairly direct and uh, they're not in the habit of lying. That's what it seemed to me. And in most cases, they uh, actually backed it up with their lives pretty much. Yeah. So this is very interesting. That means, and and good you drew the parallel between Kashmir and Afghanistan. Now, in terms of conflict, so so what stood out for you, let's say, in Afghanistan? Because uh, uh, it seems, and even in your paper, you allude to that that uh, there is there is this uh, mistake. Uh, you focus on two aspects. There is the Indian understanding, and then there is the American understanding. You do talk about the Pakistani meddling, but uh, that that's a separate thing. But there, uh, as far as the grand narratives are concerned, you were focusing on true grand narratives. There was the American grand narrative about what is their understanding of Afghanistan. And then there is the Indian grand narrative of what India thinks of Afghanistan. Now, here's my thing. Afghanistan is a society that has been, I don't know, uh, do we call it a conflict-ridden society or this is just tribalism playing out as its daily way, day-to-day basis? And it's just that people think it is a conflict, but that's just how tribalism plays out. So so this was one of the very difficult things because, you know, I always approach everything from an anthropological point of view. Um, and since there was a lot of complaints on Twitter that Abhijit bahut zyada anthropology ki baat karta hai, uh, <laughs> you... Uh, Nayanika uh, specifically, but anyway, uh, uh, the thing is, you have to understand that there are two separate phases in Afghanistan. One is the relatively peaceful phase before the Soviet invasion, where 90% of the country was rural, living in a semi-feudal atmosphere where, you know, uh, uh, if you uh, ran short of grain, you'd raid the neighboring village and things like that. Blood feuds were uh, blood feuds and uh, what have you uh, continuing. Uh, regular low-level tribal warfare. And then suddenly when the Soviet invasion starts, it blows up into full-blown jihad, which is much more problematic then. And then the civil war that happens when... Um, the Mujahideen, when the Soviets withdraw and initially Najibullah held his own. 
but then you know when the soviet union collapsed najibullah also collapsed and uh, the uh, the uh, uh, taliban start taking over it from that point on there's no recovery because what little urban culture existed in afghanistan gets wiped out completely during that period it's the victory of a tribal rural movement against whatever high culture existed in afghanistan and so since 1979 they've been a conflict society as opposed to a violent tribal society before that okay so now here's the thing when you go into a society what stu- stood out to me from your paper was the amount of trust deficit that society has uh, it, it seems as if it's a highly trust deficit laden society so how would you manage like i was i was so fascinated that you know when you narrated in the paper that your daily visits were with a different vehicle a different driver and a different source so how does one go about in such a trust deficit society how does even go about interviewing people so how did that feel to you look th- th- there were times when it was seriously scary like for example where uh, i had to get evacuated from kandahar uh, because Ooh. word had gone around that there was this fat indian going around interviewing people which means there's a prize on your head uh, i had to get evacuated to kabul and then you know in ghazni um it, it uh, we drove down to ghazni which is anyway quite a dangerous drive but in ghazni itself um you could say i was a hostage of the taliban a guest of the taliban but it could have very easily become a hostage of the taliban there was no guarantee that i was going to come out uh, and the thing was ghazni i never intended to interview the taliban because ghazni is a kind of a taliban stronghold because it's relatively rural right so uh, it, it, it it's one of those societies where there's zero trust amongst people you never know what's going to happen tomorrow which kind of explains why there's such a huge rate of uh, you know desertion from the afghan national security force uh, the afghan defense forces why it's such a complex society so you can't say good taliban bad taliban because people have no incentive to trust anyone you don't even trust your own neighbor out there okay so now uh, uh... let us get to that matter because the so in the paper your basic attack is on the entire premise of good taliban and bad taliban but before your where you talk about why it is not as clear as good taliban and bad taliban i would request you to first explain to everybody what is this hypothesis of good taliban and bad taliban right so uh, when the americans realized after 10 odd years of screwing up that it wasn't working they came up with this terminology because they had to make peace with the taliban because it's the taliban is so amorphous you don't know which afghan is taliban and which afghan is not taliban so they came up with this thing good taliban and bad taliban that if you side with us uh you will be good taliban if you abandon us you become bad taliban and it's actually a fairly accurate rendition of that society that the moment you support start supporting attacks on the government <coughs> you will be labeled ba- bad taliban and targeted but the carrot for you is if you do not support that and come over to you don't even have to come over to our side as long as you don't attack us we will not attack you we will not uh, do drone assassination of you we won't target your villages and things like that right and that is a very smart way of dealing with this kind of uh, <coughs> conflict society over tribal society remember in tribal societies there is societal trust uh, 
in a conflict society, there is no societal trust. There is not even tribal trust left anymore. So, you know, it's, it's a very complex mesh out there. And this was a very good way of giving them carrots and sticks. Hamare khilaf jaoge, hum tumpe bum maar denge. Hamare saath rahoge, to tumko kuch nahi hoga. Protect shayad nahi kar sakte, par tumko maarenge nahi. Okay. Uh, India's thing was, no, once they've left you, they've left you. They can't come back into the fold. And that's not the way you deal with a society like that. Because, see, they're not going to help Pakistan because they like... There wasn't anyone that I met who liked Pakistan. And mind you, many of these meetings were set up by Pakistanis for me, which tells you a lot that, you know, nobody there has a good opinion of Pakistan. Yeah, but this is very interesting. The, the, the image that is given to the world is that Pakistan controls and has the highest control on Afghanistan. Uh, you cannot solve Afghanistan without the Pakistanis. It's even funny in a way that even when you look at television portrayals of uh, the Taliban, I'll give you a classic example of Homeland. You know, the way Homeland has portrayed the Taliban and how the Americans deal with them. Or even if you look at real-time documentaries or you read articles, they always say without the Pakistan, the Taliban cannot be solved. But here's the ironical situation where you do your ground research and literally you don't come across anyone who hey, uh, you know really likes Pakistan. So for that kind of a scenario, how can Pakistan have such a disproportionate say in the affairs of Afghanistan and the Taliban? Right. So th there's several methods of doing this, right? The first is uh, evacuating their families. You provide safe haven for their families and effectively hold the families hostage. Second is that they tend to hold the families of tribal leaders hostage. So whatever, you know, fealty networks, feudal fealty networks are left there, they tend to control that. Third, Pakistan has a very amorphous understanding of who supports them or not. Tomorrow, you may not like Pakistan, but you say, I want to carry out a bombing of Kandahar Air Base. They'll be like, okay, great. Here's some TNT. Here's some Semtex. Here's a lorry for you to drive it in. Go drive it in. So he hasn't technically aligned with Pakistan. He probably hates Pakistan, but Pakistan is happy to help him. It's basically one of those things that if you want to set Afghanistan on fire, we don't care who you are. We will provide you with the kerosene. Plus, it's a leadership control tactic of large parts of the Pashtun leadership. Uh, and anybody who can afford it, tell me who wants to leave their kids and their wives and their elderly parents in an area where drones can bomb you or some truck-laden thugs can come and kill you. So they'd much rather go to Pakistan and be safe, even if they're being held hostage. So, you know, it's a complex mix of leadership control, coercion, carrots, and generally absolute Pakistani generosity with money and arms. Yeah, so this is very interesting. So in the entire points where they kind of coincide with, uh, you know, the Pakistani side, and what's the interesting aspect in this is that you did not mention Islam at all, that they are co-religionists, which I thought would have been the first point. For them to get along with each other is that no, we're co-religionists, so we better get along. But even in your report, you don't seem to mention that. I want to read out a part of your report uh, where you say that I was convinced at this point that things were going to go south, especially when for the only time during this trip, I had guns pointed at me. However, the mention of the magic word Hindustan calms things down 
calmed things down significantly and i was invited into the hut of the caretaker a sad figure who had lost his entire family during the war so i want you to do me a favor a narrate the story a little bit and b hmm. tell me what is the kind of goodwill india carries and is it as much as we make it out to be in india uh it actually is you know anywhere wow. that you go anywhere that you go you tell them you're from hindustan there's a sudden smile on the face right uh it's just normal affection for ordinary people on the roads you know uh your your tea will be made free your ice cream will be free uh chote chote cheez you know it's it's not that they're going to give you a mercedes or a rolls royce or something like that but whatever they can afford right so uh th- they have this delicious elaichi flavored chewing gum cardamom flavored chewing gum out there which i got back whole stacks of and you know every time i used to go buy it my guide had to pay for it and uh they'd see me talking to my guide um and they'll be like you're not from here um so i'd be like i kind of figured out what you're not from here is so i'd be like hindustan and be like oh free 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 take it take it and i thought this was like iran where you've got to play this elaborate game of tarof tarof is you know you have to pretend that you know you don't want the payment and you have to insist for the next 5 to 10 minutes nahi nahi paisa le lijiye paisa le lijiye actually if you walk away without paying they'll come after you and beat you up for walking away in iran you you've got to play this elaborate charade but it wasn't like that this wasn't tarof this was actually them having goodwill saying no i don't want payment just go it's it's wonderful thank you for coming here help us go uh, we we think well of you uh, all of them sing uh, uh, bollywood songs they sing it all wrong they don't know the words so they're they're singing something that they think is a bollywood song but it isn't hindi even to my madrasi ears it didn't sound like hindi so uh there is a spring of goodwill out there so what happened in this particular case is there's a very old uh, mosque it's probably the earliest they say it's the earliest mosque in south asia it's called the nau gumbad or nine um, uh, nine domes mosque which is built over a buddhist temple which itself is built over a zoroastrian temple and the uh, caretaker out there he ha- uh, he basically survives on hash he grows his own hashish uh, uh, crops out there so a uh, really nice guy so when we had gone from mazari sharif towards balkh which is an old fort that timur sacked that genghis khan sacked where zoroaster came and died where alexander's wife roxan was born uh, uh, and ruled uh, we uh, this was a tourist thing so we stopped and it's kind of off the road so when you go off the road there was this armed party out there that got very aggro and the moment you say and and you know it it was a bit scary i mean there were a lot of times here where you didn't know if you're going to come back alive but which was kind of the thrill also um the guide was really good he knew when to bring in hindustan so the moment he said hindustan and you can hear hindustan that's it They're like ah yeah yeah okay come 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 so this was repeated this was a pattern that was repeated everywhere where it was very positive except in kandahar i still don't know why it didn't have that effect in kandahar uh or maybe it was just the people that it was given to that it didn't have the correct effect with but everywhere else being from hindustan worked a miracle 
so what it could the possible reason for hindustan carrying such a goodwill in afghanistan be that they're not seen as uh, intruders people who want to change their way of life and in mostly, fact accept them the way they are mostly and that we screw pakistan over which is a very important consideration for them uh, uh they also like the fact that we've never actually occupied them or come into their soil or and that said i wonder if we put boots on the ground there or even air force or anything out there i'm wondering how quickly that goodwill will dissipate mm. right but we also have to remember for indian foreign policy uh, if you look at the 70 years since independence except for those uh, what 5 6 years when the taliban came to power when was it in 1990 Uh, 798 yes uh from there to 2001 where the uh, twin towers are brought down and the invasion starts except for those 4 5 years afghanistan has been virulently anti pakistan and pro india hmm. right and that's a significant foreign policy achievement that even the mujahideen which hates you for having supported the soviets the moment they come to power they turn anti pakistan and pro india Mm. which tells you a lot so it's it's um it's it's a lot of complex reasons they also feel a great cultural affinity with india and what was very surprising was that i've noticed this about pakistanis they don't have a cultural identity of what it is to be pakistani initially mm. they claim their muslim india then for the first 10 15 years of their existence they claimed that they were persians then for the next 30 40 years they claimed that they were arabs now they claim that they're turks okay they don't know who they are on the other hand afghanistan which is a much more heterogeneous society you know uh, and we're talking about actual ethnic differences between tajiks hazaras uzbeks um, uh, uh, pashtuns and things like that uh, they have a sense of being afghan you know pakistan is a country without a culture Afghanistan they have no country as you define it but they have a great deal of culture they have that ethnic uh not ethnic they have they have that sense of nationhood so it's very interesting actually from an uh, uh, foreign anthropologist this is like a dream because this is where you get those tribal affinities so afghanistan would be like something sort of a tribal affinity based society where they are uh, attached to their kabila and their identity of their uh, uh tribe and uh, that's where they take pride from and their and also from their ethnicity and you you're right and pakistan seems to be a confused society which does not understand but then uh, just to expand what is that exact connection that they feel with india at a cultural level what is that what do they talk about there i've never actually been able to pinpoint it right it's uh it's just a generic affection for india i suspect it comes mostly because even in a place like herat which has a large shia population which is very close to the iranian border and is culturally probably more like iran like herat's um you know central area where all the restaurants and things are you feel like you're in tehran like in a suburb of tehran right mm-hmm. in spite of that there seems to be much more of a cultural affinity with india than there is for iran so mm-hmm. i don't know what the root of it is because that will require a lot more study but i just found it really 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 strange 
that they look up to India, they don't look up to Iran in that sense, even amongst the Shias. Very interesting. So now let's go into the so first let's address the Indian part. So where do you think India has misunderstood Afghanistan in terms of good Taliban and bad Taliban? First, we don't understand that it's a tribal conflict. And even within the tribe, there is no social trust now increasingly. Because, you know, even within tribes, I mean, tribal societies can have their own past struggles. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, in, in fact, uh, pre-industrial tribal societies tend to be extremely violent even amongst themselves. Uh, you have past struggles. You have father killing son, uncle killing brother, uh, uh, nephew killing uncle, whatever, and things like that, which is kind of what Pakistan is exploited, which mm -hmm. we don't exploit. See, mm -hmm. you can actually have a setup where you say, my uncle wants to kill the nephew and the nephew wants to kill the uncle. So we will provide arms to both nephew and uncle, wh whoever uh, best man wins, but we, uh, we, we still end up winning because we've given both of you with arms. Mm -hmm. No. We want to do that Gandhi uh, bhaichara, peace and brotherhood uh, you can't kill each other and if you kill each other one of you is not with us uh, or this uncle is with us we, we tend to look at these things in binary like you know the, the discourse that followed after the army took over in Burma do you remember what I told you Aung San Suu Kyi is very pro-India the Myanmar's army is even more pro-India yeah there is no China has won or China has taken over. But that is some that is a nuance that doesn't get through the thick Indian skull. It's like that. Uncle can also be pro-India. Nephew can also be pro-India. But because you have decided that uncle is pro-India, therefore nephew must be anti-India. Mm. Or just because he got arms from Pakistan, he is anti-India. That doesn't make him anti-India, boss. Right. So... We, we don't understand this kind of atomic balancing that happens in Afghanistan. And that is very, very, very problematic. You can actually play the game better than Pakistan if you only understood how to play it. Nobody actually wants to come at you. And getting back to religion, the religion really didn't matter. They know Pakistanis are Muslims, but they still like Indians more. They're willing to see other Taliban as Muslim. Muslim, Muslim, biradari hai. But when it comes to Indians, they're like, you may be Muslim, you may not be Muslim. We don't give a damn. We like you. End of story. So it's very interesting. So see, this is a classic case where tribal identities and um, your individual material and social priorities trump your religiosity. If there ever was a case, it is the case with Afghanistan, where they, they, they seem to place more importance to that. But isn't Taliban, I mean, the image of the Taliban across the world is a deeply theocratic, religious, ideological state, which suppresses people. And I mean, there is enough evidence for that. So how do they maneuver around this? Because when they are in power, they kind of are what they are, religious theocrats, right? But see, this is what I noticed in Afghanistan. Um, even without the Taliban, it is a religious theocracy. The power mm. of the average mullah is so great. Uh, the uh, suppression of women is so great. Right. Uh, the Taliban just increases that slight bit more that women can't walk around alone or things like that. 
but it's not much better in afghanistan right now unless you live in a fortified area that is protected by uh, the secure uh, security forces and things like that right so you're talking about very marginally more religious or less religious now i don't know because i was nowhere near afghanistan in 2001 so i can't compare the old taliban with the new taliban but i can tell you in 2020 the taliban most of the taliban that i met are no different from the normal society for afghanistan that you see uh, so if they come to power may might their leadership be more repressive oppressive possibly yes because any you look at any government that has claimed to be an islamic republic the only thing an islamic republic or an islamic emirate does is that as a sign of their piety and religiosity they tend to impose more controls on women and they tend to get rid of interest these are the two mm. main things that they do so i don't know if it is and and you know when you are already such a women's repressive society or a society that is repressive for women then islam has to be slightly more repression hmm tum pehle theek nahi kar rahe the but this is the rule of god therefore we are now doing it the right way hmm right so it's like god. that and what uh, it was particularly interesting for me because my guide uh, three of my guides in fact uh they all kind of had the same thing to say because they were all very urban uh, uh educated uh men the standard line that they had was afghanistan is the biggest open air prison for women mm right they all three of them were shia uh hazaras in fact so uh for and they didn't know each other because see i had to keep changing guides every time because uh those were the security guidelines that had been given to me and um it, it seemed to be almost constant with all of these people that <clears throat> life for women wasn't very good in afghanistan even now we can pretend that it is and that the american intervention bought these great leaps it has in certain sections at the very top of society but otherwise it really hasn't hmm Okay so now let's get into uh, the next one which is uh, the american aspect and i want to read uh, a particular line again from your paper where you say the united states primary error that it decided to engage in in courts nation building imposing bizarre first world paradigms in what is essentially a feudal tribal confederacy essentially a remnant of the persianate gunpowder states sans any central authority now let, let's get into the uh, united states of america so So my first question is how is this nation building model of the United States of America in in Afghanistan because we need to explain it with a parallel different from the one in let's say Iraq post Saddam so what what are, are or they are working on the same paradigm they work pretty much on the same paradigm right they think that if you invest money you can just fast forward 200 years of human evolution that you can go from a pre-industrial state to a post-industrial state where everybody talks uh, women's rights and you know uh, uh, 63 different genders and uh, uh, whatever have you uh, 
That's not the way it works, especially not such a badly traumatized society like Afghanistan is. So it it's to be fair to the Americans, I think they started realizing that towards the end. But even there, when you have a Democrat president like Obama, you can't actually say these things or enforce policy that way. You have to stick to cultural norms. You can't just say, you know what, we're withdrawing and the best strongman that we know is Abdul Rashid Dostam. So let's leave him in charge and bye-bye to you. Uh, you know, that kind of breaks down their own rhetorical uh, baggage that they've created for themselves out there, that we're here to change society and so on and so forth. So remember, when they managed to nation build Japan and Germany, remember, Japan and Germany were already advanced industrial states in their own right. Italy was already an advanced industrial state in its own right. So it didn't need nation building. What it needed was capital and a market. And in the case of Japan, the Korean War provided the market. Uh, even for Germany, the Korean War provided a massive market to start exporting to. And uh, the Cold War provided another market. So you had market, you had investment coming in. Uh, and the human capital already existed. So, you know, they knew what a vibrant market economy looks like. They've been conditioned to a state monopoly on par for 100, 200 years. So it's not so tough for them to make that leap again. Here, if you go, say, state monopoly on violence, they look at you like, huh? Ye kya? Of course, most Indians are also like that. That's a different matter. But... Uh, <laughs> uh, you're not going to get it. If you say that, you know, you, you can't... Just because you like that girl, you can't drag her by the hair and go marry her off. They don't get that. They're like, why? This is what's been done traditionally. Right. Uh, if you say that, you know, no, you can't just kill him and take over his factory. You have to do, you have to submit a proposal. And if your proposal is the highest or lowest, depending on the whatever the structure is, you have to win it and then set up the factory. They don't get that. They're like, but I'm the strong man. I, I. Uh, if any factory has to be set up here, I will be the one setting up the factory. Right. So the Americans didn't get that. It was, again, a lot of their baggage, their dogma, you know, this uh, uh, delusion of freedom and democracy that they uh, hold so dear that they want to introduce everywhere. Um, I wanted to meet my friends at the American embassy out there, but all the guides told me it was too dangerous. So I wanted to kind of sit down there and chart out how their thinking had changed. The problem was that even though I could WhatsApp my friends at the embassy, I couldn't actually go meet them because apparently Pakistan has spotters all around. And the problem is these spotters may not be the ones who correspond with the people in Pakistan who arranged meetings for me. So, okay. you know, I might just end up in little pieces one fine day somewhere oh kind God. of thing. So it was... Yeah, so it was, so, you know, it, it's just the sheer dilemma of doing these things. It's a high risk tour. It's um, it's quite dangerous dealing with these people because you don't know when they suddenly decide, like, you know, um, uh, the, the Pakistanis told these leaders to meet me. What if one of them suddenly decided that he had turned against Pakistan that day, wanted to make a deal with whatever and decide to use me as the pawn in the game? 
Um, I thought about these things after coming back. The problem was the excitement of having so many Taliban meetings. You lose your natural um, filters that would kind of your danger sensors in that sense. So you're like, oh my god, I'm actually meeting these guys. This is fantastic, Karke. Uh, it, it tends to be a bit, uh, yeah. It numbs you to the dangers. No, so this is interesting. So what you're saying is, in a way, also shows that how decentralized the Taliban operation is. Because that's the one thing that stood out for me in your entire paper was the whole decentralized nature. It's like you know, uh, there might be a Kabile ka sardar in this area and then you just go like 10 blocks away from that and the nature of uh, Taliban and the nature of the functioning of that Talibani leader of that area changes completely and you have to renegotiate and hedge your bets accordingly. Not even them. I think it seems from what you're saying that even the Pakistanis have kind of decentralized the operation where everybody is kind of doing this. So they might have some broader do's and don'ts, but beyond those broader do's and don'ts, it's basically horses for courses. You do what you want to do, right? Okay, look, the Pakistani deal to all these people is if you are not happy with the status quo, we will provide you with money and arms. The only thing you have to do for us in return is once in a year or once every two years, we will have one major campaign that you've got to join. Mm. And there it becomes this honor issue that I have therefore I have to pay back my debt. Mm. Right. Uh, which is where you have certain elements of a centralized Taliban but the overwhelming majority of the Taliban are not that centralized Taliban. So you can say, uh, uh, this is just a off the top of the head calculation, but about 7 to 10% of the Taliban would be directly religiously inclined and under Pakistani command. And they would be like the crack troops. They would be like your paracommandos of the Indian army. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the rest would basically be feudatories. Like if you look at a feudal army, hota kya tha? you look at Prithviraj Chauhan's army, only about 15 to 20% of the army was his own army. The rest were all these feudal levies that had to come from villages and things to fight beside him, right? Which is why they never got their act coordinated as one. Mm. Uh, this is very much like that. You have these shock troops and crack troops, which are... Pakistani trained and centralized, but the overwhelming majority are feudal levies. You know, each landholder has to send a son, uh, things like that, in return for services delivered, not even to the landholder, but to the feudal lord of that landholder or to the local chieftain. Hmm. So how the hell does this nationhood stay then? How does the nation of Afghanistan stay in such a conflict-ridden, such a decentralized tribal society where basically everybody's doing their own thing? So the, how does the sovereignty of the nation get managed? Uh, that's the amazing thing, right? We tend to assume there was a, for a very long time, there was this assumption that it was only after metal, uh, after the Bronze Age or during the Bronze Age that nation states started getting created, Right. Mm. And what we now realize is that the Aztecs, the Incas, they were all pre-metal stone age societies. 
living right into the 1500s that still managed to create empires uh, extremely mm. feudatory violent empires as in internal violence but there were empires nevertheless that managed to create sovereign states that had an idea of us versus them mm. uh, even though nobody had told them about the treaty of westphalia or anything like that uh, mm. managed to do that and this is where you know it's we so accustomed to a modern state as we see it hmm. we don't think that a tribal confederacy can actually have this feeling of a nation state this kind of general idea of sovereignty but if you think about it every pre-industrial society was exactly like afghanistan afghanistan is a time capsule that's hmm. why i use the term persianate gunpowder state because afghanistan is the way mughal india was it was way the way the durrani empire was it's the way safavid persia was hmm. because without so the governance you couldn't even ex- exercise the kind of control uh, that a modern state has so before i start taking uh, the live questions i just want you to explain uh, this one thing that you uh, literally write in the second last line of the paper so you say something i'm going i'm going to read it here because i really loved this part so you say i'm going to read the entire paragraph so afghanistan is doing what it has always been doing for centuries now it is not a solvable problem rather more of a manageable problem the issue is the questions you ask and the preconceived notions you take seem to end up dictating policy more than ground realities be it india or the united states pakistan does and will continue to exercise significant control over the top echelons of afghanistan's feudal strongmen there is nothing that can be done about it however and this is in bold management of the problem dictates that india also exploit the notorious fickleness and duplicity of these feudal strongmen rather than bunch them up into one consolidated in courts basket of deplorables i i like the use of the analogy of the basket of deplorables here realistically no afghan state can have a monopoly on violence the way it is understood in modern parlance but what can be achieved and this is the one i want you to explain is an afghan central authority strong enough to prevent larger coordinated eruptions of violence and to play divide and rule when such coordinated eruptions eventuate so what do you mean abhijit can you explain this and then we'll go into the live viewers questions afghan central authority so what kind of a central authority are you envisaging when you are talking about over here exactly the way the afghan king and najibullah exercised which okay. was that there is a basic afghan army uh, which is mostly directed against external invasion it does not interfere in the day to day lives of people right unfortunately with the najibullah regime like the shah of iran there was this forcible everybody should wear short skirts and go to school kind of thing which you don't mm. need in afghanistan so you need to not look back to najibullah you need to look back to the durrani empire the hotaki empire and the uh, 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 the final kings of afghanistan who uh, you know ran this as a very clear case of sovereignty but absolutely did not interfere in the day to day violence and tribal warfare that used to happen within except when there was a regional rebellion or something like that when all the other states would get together and crush that regional rebellion that's it got it so it it, it is so so in long story short afghanistan is basically uh, a living example of what it was like to live in ancient times <laughs> with some new technology uh, correct that is that, that is why i use that term uh, uh 
a Persianate gunpowder state. Uh, I'd highly recommend this book, India in the Persianate Age, for everybody to read to understand what that means. And also go to Wikipedia and look up what a gunpowder empire is. Uh, it's it's um, uh, the very specific terms which have a whole baggage of connotations with them. So do look up this book and this particular definition of uh, a Persianate empire and a gunpowder empire. Uh, do look them up. I think that will explain a lot of things for you. All right. So now let me get into the question. So there's this young kid, I Abhijit. I think. That's, huh. yeah, that's okay. I'll ask the questions. That, that's okay. So somebody, and I think he had asked this question to you a while ago, I think when you and I were on Shams podcast. So he's asked a follow-up question. This is more about his career, but I still want to ask it. So he's like, uh, is IR a good field to go, go into if I have interest for it? I am unsure about the salary aspect of it for me. I understand that IR is a broad term. Yet I would like to ask with respect to think tanks and research and maybe the general idea about others. This, this kid had asked you a question before too. It's it's a very corporate structure. If you if it's a real if it's really a passion with you and you think you can make it, uh, the sky's the limit, right? Even your entrance salary, maybe your internship, you won't get paid very well, but your entrance salary will also be very good. Uh, I still and I always got paid a corporate salary because I was actively and I still am actively headhunted by think tanks. Uh, plus, you do lots of risk consultancy and things on the side, right? Uh, on the other hand, if your uh, writing skills aren't great, if your communication skills aren't great, uh, and it becomes like one of those, uh, you know, just reproduce what you read in the newspaper the previous day today in some uh, mishmash, uh, the think tank field is strewn with... Uh, people who have no future, unfortunately. So it it really depends, like any corporate job, do you want to take that risk or not? All right. So now let me get into some Afghanistan questions. So Ashish has asked you, hi, Abhijit, what do you see the future? What is What do you think is the future of Afghanistan? Uh, just what it is right now. It's, it's a constant state of tribal warfare, uh, the the terrain makes it impossible for you to impose central authority of any kind. So, uh, and it's it it did. If you look at the architecture and things like that, you realize that this was once a fairly urbanized society that's de-urbanized uh, significantly in the last three four hundred years. So, uh, why I still don't understand. Maybe climate change. Maybe not. I don't know what it is. But it is what it is. And your future going ahead, uh, for the next two, three hundred years almost, I really won't see any real change on the ground. It's going to be pretty much what's described in the report. All right. So somebody, Sudhindra had asked, uh, isn't Ghazni a Hazara Shia stronghold? How did the Taliban get so strong over there? Uh, no, Ghazni isn't a Hazara Shia stronghold, as I understand it. There's a huge number of uh, 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 Pashtuns out there. It's it's an extremely dangerous place to go to. And like I said, you know, people don't understand this, but there are Shia Taliban as well. There are Shia Taliban as well. In Herat, which is an overwhelmingly Shia uh, town, uh, you have 
huge Taliban pockets. If you read the report, when I was going from um, uh, uh, Herat to Ghor, the province of Ghor, where Mohammed Ghori comes from, where the minaret of Jam is, uh, uh, you can start hearing the gunfire even within one hour outside of Herat. Right. So these Shia Sunni things are also very mixed up in Afghanistan. Uh, but Ghazni is very much, uh, as I understand it, a Sunni area and uh, very, very strong Taliban out there, possibly because of its proximity to Pakistan as well. But All also, right, so, so yeah. Okay, Pravar has asked, uh, is there any correlation between Afghan tribal society and Sunni Muslim politics of India? Because both are pre-industrial feudal ones. Uh, not really. It's 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 completely different uh, feudal societies. At most, you can say that there is a strong man per in every village or ghetto or whatever. But that is where uh, uh, the Indian Muslim is probably more theologically radical and less prone to violence than the Afghan who is really quite clueless about religion that way, except what they've absorbed by osmosis. They're overwhelmingly illiterate, uh, but they tend to be a lot more violent. You reach for your gun, everybody has a gun, uh, and you reach for your gun for almost everything and anything, which you so, never do. So this is a very good question huh, by Amir. So I think it's in the context of Afghanistan. So what is an Afghanistan nation, the people or the land? It's a very good question. Uh, it's It's the people. Because even in a place like with the Hazaras, who were slaughtered, Durrani. Durrani, Durrani um, uh, is the founding father of Afghanistan. He's seen as the what Gandhi supposedly is to India. Uh, this man is to the Afghans. Uh, uh, he is the... He slaughtered Hazaras in their hundreds of thousands, if not millions. And they still respect him as the founder of the nation, as the father of the nation. Right. There's a. Th this is what I said. Afghanistan is has a culture despite not having a country as we understand it. Pakistan does not have a culture despite having a coherent geography as we understand it. So it's very much the people and that feeling of Afghan is quite strong, by the way, huh? amongst Tajiks, amongst Uzbeks. Like with Uzbeks, there's no movement to leave Afghanistan and join Uzbekistan. Right? Mm. Amongst the Tajiks, amongst the Hazaras, again, that separatist thing simply isn't there. The, I, I, you know, I, I was particularly curious because I was like, especially amongst the Uzbeks, I was like, look, do you want to maybe join Uzbekistan? They're like, no, we're Afghan. And that was one of the questions I specifically asked them. You know, uh, every Uzbek that I could come across, I was like, you feel that you, uh, because Afghanistan is so unsafe, uh, if you can have a little Uzbek territory and just go join Uzbekistan, do you want to do that? No, they don't. Uh, and it's quite surprising because if you look at Khyber Pakhtunkhwa in Pakistan, they've always had a huge separatist movement that wants to leave Pakistan and join Afghanistan. Yeah. But the reverse isn't true for any of the nationalities in Afghanistan, which I find is 
that's up here, right? That's the mindset. That's the power of the idea of a country. It's the people. Yeah. The people yeah. so, make the country, not the geography. Yeah. So Karthik Balaji has asked, are, the, are there any Afghan experts in Indian foreign services? And how can we use Afghanistan to play Pakistan? Mm, I don't know if there are any Afghan experts because I haven't uh, spoken to many. Uh, the problem with a lot of diplomats that I see talking about Afghanistan is they probably couldn't mingle on the ground or their knowledge is from pre, uh, 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 from the Najibullah era or before that, not post Najibullah. Uh, because a lot of what I heard them say didn't match up to what I saw on the ground. Uh, so, you know, this mingling with people, I find is that's one of the reasons I always try to go mingle with the people because it provides you with a very, very different uh, uh, point of view than um, talking to, say, Ahmed Karzai or uh, Abdullah Abdullah or people like that. Uh, I've interviewed Abdullah Abdullah several times. I've interviewed Hamid Karzai several times. But what there was huge differences between what they told me was the case and what I observed on the ground myself. And it's been the same with Indian diplomats, what they've told me and what I've observed on the ground myself. Maybe it's a time factor or a distance factor that Hamid Karzai is so secluded in his secure cocoon uh, because, you know, he's not allowed to mingle with people and things like that because of security or because Indian diplomats have only really been around there uh, mingling with the people 30 years back, not after that. Uh, maybe. Uh, but for me, this experience was just, uh, like I said, it, it knocked all my preconceived notions out of the window. Hmm. So a uh, good follow-up question by Kapil. He says, how are Balochis and Afghanis not, Talib, uh, not Taliban? So how do they? The, how do the Baloch and the Afghani people view each other? Uh, I honestly haven't seen that dynamic at all. So, so okay. All right. So now this is an interesting question. So I'm going to put it in the context of Afghanistan. So somebody asked me a question. So are there any ways to ensure that one is not stuck in an echo chamber of thought? So let's take Afghanistan as a case, Abhijit. So if one had to get a, you know, a, a, a panoply of views about Afghanistan where one has to, let's say, get the American view from their perspective, the Afghani view, and even within Afghanistan, multiple views, so that one is not stuck stuck in an echo chamber, maybe the Pakistani view and the Indian view. How does one go about doing that? Um, what one does is go to Afghanistan, tour around Afghanistan, go to ethnically diverse places and talk to people, which is what I did. Because remember, I carried so much baggage with me. I literally had to prolong my trip by three days because because for two days, I was just sitting in my guest house room, uh, having to rethink my entire approach towards asking people questions and things like that. Because on day one, just within about 24 hours of landing, all my assumptions just went out of the window. Right. It wasn't mm. what the Afghans in Delhi told me. It wasn't what the Indian diplomats in Afghanistan told me. It wasn't what my American friends who had been posted to Afghanistan told me. So, uh, and when you're doing that, I think that's a very good indication that you've kind of busted your own echo chambers. Uh, because even if you compare the three different versions, the American version, the Afghan version, and even the Afghan version, there's two different versions, uh, and the uh, uh, Indian version, you'll see that there's very little unanimity on any of these people, 
uh, on, on any of these versions. Except when it suits the Afghans, they will uh, join with India and say Pakistan is the great villain of the peace, which it is. It's just that they know how to play the game much smarter than all of the rest of you do. Hmm. So Vishwa has asked, how long will it take for Afghanistan to evolve as a modern society, if ever, from an ancient tribalistic ethnic conglomerate? It, you don't do. think so it's going to happen? I, not in my lifetime. Unless so, aliens come and, you know, uh, inflict some mental change on all of mankind, where mankind turns into this docile, scientifically advanced race saying, you know, live long and prosper and things like that. <laughs> no, it's not happening. Yeah, so basically it's a long shot. So we we, we, we can't have uh, any hope uh, on that. Okay, there are a few other questions. Now, these questions are not necessarily about Afghanistan. So the, I was keeping it for the latter part. So somebody has asked a little off-topic question. Abhijit Dada, can China infiltrate uh, Northeast during the uh, any during BRICS, like G's last visit using the troops retreating from Eastern Ladakh? By northeast, it's almost 2,000 kilometers away. Exactly. So how are we going to yeah. infiltrate using that? Besides, remember, none of the uh, folks in the northeast are particularly sympathetic to the Chinese. And you have to come across Arunachal and Sikkim, which are viciously anti-Chinese. The people there are viciously anti-Chinese. You'll mm. feel a lot of... Uh, hostility for any people coming through Arunachal and Sikkim with the ground. So then when you move into, say, the Christian re rebellion belt, uh, Mizoram, Nagaland, and all those people, uh, first you have to cross several hostile belts that are non-contiguous. You have to, or you have to cross in via Burma, which is anyway not very supportive of Chinese goals and has been uh, way gone way over and above the call of duty in supporting Indian counterterrorism goals against these uh, uh, northeastern uh, terrorist rebels, call them what you will. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not seeing that happen. Okay, so somebody has asked an Afghanistan question. How, does Afghanistan have any current border conflicts with Pakistan? Uh, if they do, uh, why, why has uh, no country tried to, you know, cut or take parts of Afghanistan like people always try to do it with India? Yeah, uh, Afghanistan doesn't accept the Durand line. The Durand line is what separates uh, Pakistan from Afghanistan. They believe that the whole of North Balochistan, which is anyway a Pashtun majority, and they believe the whole of the Northwest Frontier province, including certain parts of Punjab and Gilgit Baltistan, are Afghan. So they don't accept the border. You know, this. Uh, in that sense, the Pashtuns are to Pakistan what the Bengalis in East Pakistan were to Pakistan. Uh, there they tried to use religion to trump a linguistic movement. Uh, in uh, uh, the Northwest Frontier Province, they tried to use religion to trump an ethnic movement. And, you know, Pakistan has more Pashtuns than Afghanistan does, apparently so. The biggest Pashtun city on earth is Karachi. Not Kabul, not Kandahar, not Herat, it's Karachi. There are more Pashtuns in Karachi than there are in uh, 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 any big Afghan city. Just like there are more Jews in New York than there are in Israel, apparently. So... Uh, <laughs> It's it, it's just one of those things where it is an unsettled border. It There's a lot of scope for us to exploit, but I wouldn't 
recommend you exploit it right now till you get your act together on how to get Afghanistan together first, which is a good, uh, uh, let's put it this way, um, a strong man who isn't particularly sadistic, who can create a central authority where we don't have these unrealistic expectations of human rights and uh, women's and gender equality and, uh, uh, you know, um, um, uh, legalizing homosexuality and things like that. Uh, let them be. Let their society evolve the way it evolves. And you have these tribal confederacies working the way they always do, uh, as long as they don't get together into something bigger. Uh, so in that sense, Najibullah, that few years after the Soviets left and before the Soviet Union collapsed, that has to be your model. And remember, that was a very successful state. People tend to forget that because when the Pakistanis with the Pakistani army tried that offensive at Jalalabad, the Afghans trashed the living daylights out of the Pakistanis. I suggest you all go look up. This is in 1989, 90 or 91. Look at the Pakistani siege of Jalalabad. Um, uh, it, it was truly something to behold. You know, the, the, the Afghan army can hold its own against the Pakistanis if you just get the hell away and let the Afghans manage their own affairs. So it's very Afghans interesting. Know so more about Biden. Biden. So somebody has asked the question. So so India should shouldn't India be selling defense equipment in hordes to Afghanistan then? Yes, yes, absolutely, we should. We totally should, boss. You know, I think one of the best things we could possibly do for the LCA is once you get its weapons suite going, gift them about 50 to 75 LCAs. Your LCH, the armed helicopter uh, uh, that you've got, gift them some. Give them about 100. Do it. And don't wait for them to buy it. Give it to them. Okay. First, it riles up Pakistan like nobody's business. Second, it gives them a solid way of controlling their own country, which is extremely important. So this is a very interesting question. Somebody <laughs> has said, uh, so I guess they heard how you explained Afghanistanis, uh, Afghanis, you know, form their identity. So somebody has asked you, where do you think India fails in forming that identity of people as a nation and not as a geography? How much of that Afghan identity matrix can India learn from? Uh, a lot. And, you know, I'm so glad you asked the question. Who's the person who so asked this question? Anmol Jeet saying work. I think it's from Canada. It's a very good question. I really loved it. I really like this. So the thing is, the identity of India as a nation, unfortunately, the, the Republic of India, is that A, it is the successor state to the British, and British India is a geographical construct, and it is this loyalty to one point in history and one movement in history, which is the independence movement dominated by the Indian National Congress and the Gandhi family and the uh, well, Mahatma Gandhi and the Nehru Gandhi family that succeeded it in a sense. Okay, the inheritors of that legacy. It is already fraying because people don't remember. They, they don't have this. Tell me who watches uh, the movie Gandhi uh, anymore. Nobody does. Nobody has any linkage to it. Mm. The modern idea of India itself is sort of redefining itself. It wants to go back to the past 5,000 years or whatever. 
Um, so I think we've failed quite the very definition of India, the idea of the Republic of India is already past its use by date. Yeah, it's it's actually a very good point, and I really love the question. So I love again, back to, the, back to the northeast. If, if you have a prize for, um, you know, if you have a prize for uh, question of the week, then Anmoljit work gets it. Yeah, Anmoljit, you got the question of the week. So Chaitanya says, just like how Alaska people were trained to be a militia during Cold War as a precaution of USSR invasion, should India also do that in border states? No, because see, again, this comes back to Anmaljit Singh's question. If you train up a militia, do that militia actually feel a part of India in the first place? So in places mm. like, say, Mizoram or uh, Nagaland, where they don't feel a part of India, what exactly are you achieving by training up a militia? Mm. Right? It actually is not productive. It, it, it isn't productive at all. Second, please understand, America has huge... America is the only industrial state where the state doesn't have a monopoly on violence because of the gun laws. That's the last thing you want to have out here is creating local militias. Okay, We saw the way Salva Judum was used for horrific human rights violations in the Naxal belt. Uh, uh, that's the way India deals with militancies, unfortunately. It's not a very pleasant thing. But, you know, you really don't want to create these militias, boss. It's... It, it, uh, whatever benefits it brings and i admit it does bring some small benefits the um the uh, uh, disadvantages are like yay much okay so it's like one step forward and a hundred steps back yeah so a couple of questions about books i think somebody has said does the book kite runner show the reality of afghanistan and uh, one more question about uh i have kind of lost it i think it was uh yeah is the go book ghost wars written by steve cole worth reading yes steve cole's ghost wars is totally worth reading kite runner again yes and no because you know i generally uh steve cole was that unusual work of fiction which was actually quite fairly grounded uh futuristic but reasonably accurate with Kite Runner, you know, I I couldn't finish the book. I got bored quite uh, quickly. I kind of forced myself to go through it. And, you know, I went to that uh, Red Door library or whatever that's mentioned in the book and things like that. We took pictures out there. I think I've posted it somewhere on Twitter. But uh, uh, that Red Door bookshop. Uh, but it's, um, look, it's highly fictionalized, right? So it's not... Eh, I, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I haven't gotten into the lives of the people out there um, as deeply because I wasn't doing family research, you know. So, yeah. All right. or so research. one last question. What do you make of the delimitation process that is going to be happening in Jammu and Kashmir? I honestly don't know. Um, I haven't paid attention to it. I haven't studied it. Uh, a lot of people are telling me it's a good thing. I'm not so sure it's a very good thing, but let's see. Uh, let's see. All right. Somebody has given you and I more, more than a question. It is they are pushing us. So I think Nakul is telling both you and I, please speak with Tim Poole about the farm laws. Greta Thunberg, he's interested, but terribly unaware. Okay. I wish we had his number, Nakul. We don't. <laughs> Who's Tim Poole? So, 
Tim Pool is that journalist in America. Yeah, he's a good journalist actually. He saw, uh, you know, he used to do those ground reports. He would go to conflict zones in America, like he would cover Antifa or he would cover uh, some riots in UK or or Europe. He's, he's actually a very good journalist. He's an interesting guy. All right, guys. Mm-hmm. I guess it's time to wrap things up. So uh, here's the thing. I have left the link of Abhijit's paper in the description of the podcast. So it doesn't matter if you're listening to this on SoundCloud. Or Spotify, or you're watching this on YouTube. In every description, you'll have a link of the paper where which is written by Abhijit. I will highly recommend all of you to go and read that paper too, because that will give you the journey of how Abhijit went, and he has some really nice pictures. Or oh, just one thing, Abhijit, before we wrap things up, how was the food in Afghanistan? Uh, too much meat. Um, not enough vegetables and you know for somebody who follows my frugal indian on twitter you think i'm meat obsessed i'm not i mostly eat vegetables and within about two days of being in afghanistan i was like i just can't deal with the amount of meat i need veggies 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 there is literally no veggies on the goddamn menu here it's irritating as hell uh and uh you know it was there were certain very nice things like um, Shiryak, which is, uh, I wrote a piece about Shiryak in the Hindustan Times supplement about two, three years back when I came back from Afghanistan. Uh, uh, it's a very unique ice cream. It's not like Iranian Bastani and it's not like Indian Kulfi. Shiryak is Shiryak. Uh, uh, but uh, there's, uh, uh, in terms of food, it was mostly a reasonably forgettable experience. Mm. So, so uh, just as you talk about food, somebody has, I have to ask this. He's like, please, please, please tell Abhijit to tell me which is the best place for chicken chetinath. <laughs> in Delhi? Yeah, tell me. Uh, in Delhi, chicken chetinath would be Tamil Nadu Bhavan which uh, the one opposite Chanakya cinema, which unfortunately the restaurant shut down during uh, uh, COVID lockdown and hasn't opened up again. Uh, but both Dindakal Biryani and Chetinad Chicken, that was the best place to go. It was really the only authentic place to go. I have tried almost every Chetinad Chicken and Andhra, uh, uh, so-called Andhra restaurants and so-called uh, Chetinad restaurants in Delhi. They are all undiluted crap. Okay, except for Tamil Nadu Bhavan and Andhra Bhavan, nobody actually gets Andhra food and Tamil Nadu food, correct? There is one place in um, uh, uh, Green Park called Tenali, which just does the mutton fry and the uh, chicken 65, correct? But the rest of it is all crap. It's not authentic. So, So, you know, it's every time Abhijit comes on a podcast to discuss Taliban, it ends up with Abhijit giving food. <laughs> food. <laughs> so, so on that note, it's time to end the podcast today. Abhijit, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and uh, looking forward to talking to you about something interesting the next time. Thanks for coming on the podcast, buddy. Well, well, very well. All right, guys. Time to end the podcast. If you like the podcast, please subscribe to the channel, like the video, share it with others, leave a comment in the uh, in the comment section. If you want to support the podcast, become a member of the YouTube channel, or you can subscribe on Patreon or buy the part, you know, Charvak podcast merch, or you can send the donations to UPI. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, namaste, take care, goodbye.